Hello and welcome to another episode of Get Out of Rap. Um, today I am joined by Ed Wells. Ed is Head of Strategy and Development for a company called SoLogic and they deal in, amongst other things, root cause analysis. Um, Ed has written a book on organisational problem solving. He delivers training and lectures on this and um, in many, many contact centres with contact centre staff. And really this whole um, subject is a better understanding of how repeat uh, mistakes get ingrained in organisations and uh, many of those are kind of manifested through the contact centre environment. So it's a fascinating subject and in terms of Ed, believe it or not, I first met Ed 27 years ago. Now this makes us both feel um, really old. Ed was the first, very first person I saw when I was dropped off at um, Reading University. He was in the room opposite me and then we shared a house together at Reading. So Ed, this is a very, very auspicious podcast for me. I've got a massive grin on my face. Thanks very much for coming and doing this. Uh, well, Martin, thank, thanks for inviting me. Um, I don't know whether I should be here to talk about root cause analysis or whether we should be talking about Reading University for the next hour. But I'm going to I'm going to make the assumption that it might be slightly more interest to your listenership if we if we at least touch on um, organisational problem solving and perhaps just um, flirt with the occasional university story. Does that sound fair? It does. Maybe there's a a whole other series of like late night get out of rap that we could do. You know Actually, when Hollyoaks yeah. went a bit. They've yeah. got a an yeah. evening one, haven't they? So yeah, exactly. maybe we yeah. could do yeah, something like, like that. Like a remix album. Yeah, do you know what? I think the problem is, we've got <laughs> the problem is there's just so many stories yeah. um, that I wouldn't, know, I wouldn't know where to start. But yeah, let's try and, um, for the benefit of everyone else listening, rather than just mine and yours, yeah. <laughs> entertainment. Well, you know, the meet, you know, I think when you meet somebody who you stay friends with for the best part of three decades, you know, there's a lot of good reasons for that. You don't just meet and happen to coincide and you obviously share some values and one of the things that we were talking about before we hit record on 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 today was how in an odd kind of way our careers have well started to coincide a little bit and perhaps 10 years ago we were doing very very different things yeah um maybe if i if i give if i give the podcast a little bit of background on me from where my career yeah. went and my experience with contact centres over the years and, and, and where I am today, um, because I don't think it's a particularly predictable journey. In fact, quite honestly, if you'd asked me five years ago, or if you'd have said to me, I should say five years ago, this is what you'll be doing, I think I would have thought you were talking to somebody else. I certainly would have been looking over my shoulder to try and <laughs> see who you're actually talking to. So as Martin said, um, 27 odd, 30 years ago, we first met and I remember Martin putting a picture of I think the cure up on his room wall, yeah. followed by a picture of White Hart Lane, and I thought, well, that's good enough for me. <laughs> so we did university together, didn't we? We both graduated in similar subjects. Yeah, um, that served us well. Served us well, yeah, absolutely. And and we then vanished off in different directions, didn't we, yeah. professionally? So yeah. I ended up moving into the drinks industry. So and that was. You know, like probably a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, it was a complete accident. There was no great intention there. I, well, in actual fact, the first thing I did was, you know, I, I actually started off being a radio reporter for a really short period of time. So for um, immediately after university, I was interviewing people about how they got their cat stuck up a tree or 
why they drove the wrong way up a dual carriageway, you know, that kind of stuff that's on local news. Um, and it just didn't, I didn't enjoy it. And I thought, well, you know, if somebody said to me, oh, there's some, there's some majestic wine are looking for staff at the moment and um, you like to drink. And that was definitely true. <laughs> I, I did and I still do. And um, I thought, well, that's fantastic. You can get paid to taste wine and talk jive about bottles of wine. I'm pretty sure I can do that. And that's exactly what I did. I joined their graduate training scheme and I worked in um, effectively retail for three years. Um, Do you think that the unis could have done more? I always I look back at that and think I can actually remember missing the whole careers bit, probably because we were playing Mario Karts mm-hmm. and we'd finished exams and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think even though we were technically adults, I didn't have a clue I, what I was doing. I don't know whether I... I mean, your Mario Kart comment is probably the most um, <laughs> accurate one there because I don't think I can really point the blame at the university without holding up a, no, mir- a mirror to yeah. myself. Um, but I'll also go back and say I don't think the schools were particularly good at that mm. either. So I don't think that I had a really... I don't think I had any kind of clear perspective on what the job market meant. I don't think, in hindsight, I even knew what most jobs undertook. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you'd have said to me, do you want to get into banking my thought to you would have been sat behind a counter in a, in a retail bank. Yeah. You know, that was my perception of banking. Mm. And I think those naive perceptions I probably held across lots of different sectors. Um, so undoubtedly they could, and I suspect they probably do a far better job today for a whole host of reasons. But you know, whether it was down to their shortcomings or the Super Nintendo, I ended up at Majestic Wine. Um, so I, did, I worked in retail for three years, and then I... I decided to push my career forward and ended up coming back to the, the Reading area where Martin and I met and I worked for uh, a company called Lathwaite's for five years. They were on the Sunday Times Wine Club, Lathwaite's Wine Club, a whole host of other um, uh, wine brands. Um, and that really is where I became involved with the contact centre environment. So initially we had a specialist department which sort of fed into the contact centre environment and then as the demands of the marketplace changed we kind of became part of the wider contact centre um, and so certainly I wouldn't call myself by any stretch of the imagination an expert in that sector it was a sector that I was operating within for about five years um, moved from there ran my own business in the drinks trade for, for 12, 13, 14 years um, and then decided after about 20 years in that career, like a lot of people do, that maybe I ought to try my hand at something different. But like most people that do that, I had no idea what that different thing was at all. Um, so I thought, well, I've got some knowledge. You know, I've got a few war stories. I've, I've worked for the big corporates. I've, I've run my own business and everything that's entailed in that, the good, the bad and the ugly. So I've probably got something to, some knowledge and expertise that I can share with other people on their journey so that they perhaps would learn from the mistakes I made and the successes that, that, that I made. So for about two years, I, 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 I was delivering um, a host of what you would l- generally call consultancy services. And like most people migrating into that world, what that really meant was that I would be all things to all people as long as they, I could put a, an invoice in at the end of the month. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And one of my clients was a company in the, the, that we've just mentioned, a company called SoLogic. SoLogic are an international organization and they specialize in, uh, they specialize in the field of root cause analysis, which I'll explain in a moment. Um, and 
they were looking for support in terms of the sort of marketing and, and, and message and, and, and various other aspects of what they did for various reasons. Uh, and I ended up working with those guys and we got on really well and I learned more about their organisation and what that meant. Uh, and my remit within the organisation grew. So root cause analysis is a form of structured problem solving. Okay? Um, and its history, uh, its, its, its origins, probably date back in its modern sense to the mid 20th century. So it was a, a process and a mindset that was put in place by organisations who were at danger of substantial failings that could harm individuals, could harm the environment. So the, the, the sort of sweet spot for root cause analysis in the mid 20th century and latter 20th century were what, what I describe as the explosive industries. And by that I mean oil and gas, mining, chemical industry, engineer, civil engineering, uh, and a host of manufacturing and uh, related sectors, where major issues mean big news for the organisation, big news for society at large. How much of that do they do, before, like preempting potentially something disastrous versus how much is done afterwards, yep. potentially after a, an incident, let's say? It's, a, it's a, a really interesting question. Primarily, root cause analysis was used as an investigation tool. So again, if you look at the 20th century, the majority of organisations, root cause analysis would be a tool that they used to understand why a mistake was made, or if they were a particularly progressive organisation, why near miss happened. And actually, near misses, organisations that investigate their near misses as rigorously as they investigate genuine errors of note are, as you can imagine, a lot more robust than those that don't. Today, 21st century, 2020, just around the corner, root cause analysis is, is used as a predictive tool, as a proactive, preventative tool, much more. And, and the more enlightened and progressive organisations that we work with will use root cause analysis in all its various forms to, um, to reveal the com potential competitive advantages that are out there. Some of your listeners will have heard of the term marginal gains. What are these microscopic or, or at least very small developments that we can put in place to help develop the organisation? Um, for the main reason, and we all know this, that the, the proverbial low-hanging fruit of improvements has been picked many years ago in most sectors. There aren't the big um, quantum leaps that we can make to move forward. The best organisations recognise that and look for all the myriad of much smaller things that they can do to make the organisation better. And a quote that I often use when I'm presenting is from um, Mercedes um, Director of Strategy, James Vowles, who says that it says two words to the effect that people think that success in Formula One is about these sort of big steps forward, these big quantum leaps, these big engine improvements, or it might be a, a tyre improvement, or a chassis improvement, or a driver improvement. In actual fact, it's not that. It, it's, it's thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, of granular improvements that, mm -hmm. that aggregate together to make you, to get you pole position, to get you to the chequered flag before anybody else. That's not how it's often described, and it's not how people like to consider it, because I think human beings, we like to, we like to think there is a, a thing that we can do, but in actual fact, in reality, that's not the case. How do they, how do they sustain that? I'm just thinking about applications within mm -hmm. 
companies, how do they sustain that when there's changes of leadership? Because if you've got this kind of steady, small improvements mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, over time, over time, yeah. over time, that is, is it, is that just then point to the importance of the strategy that, so then there's less of a dependency on a, on a sea change based on the new head of or the new person coming in. I don't. I don't think the two things are necessarily. Uh, I don't think they ha- they struggle coexisting. Okay. You can have a process of complex problem solving of root cause analysis that sits as the sort of thinking engine, the the, the marginal gains engine, or the investigation engine of an organisation. And that can coexist very happily with large scale changes in strategy. Right. Because your strategy, quite as you quite rightly allude to, can be one particular direction in year one, and for various reasons that could change, that could 180 in year two. But you still need to understand all the things that you can do to manifest your potential, the potential of the organisation, and also mitigate the chance of mistakes. And organisations that are able to look at every aspect of it rather than just focus on the individuals or just focus on the moving parts are far better at doing that. So what you find is with, with, with a, a, a good concept of, of, of root cause analysis, what you'll see in organisations is they, they, they tend to follow a certain set of behaviours very well. And, and they, focus on, they all focus on different ones, but there is a, there is a, there is a, there's a shared DNA, for want of a better way of putting it, and we can break it down into maybe sort of five or six specific chunks, and everybody listening will, will probably recognise at least the potential benefit for all of these. The, the first one, in summary, really, the first one is that they find the gathering of data and information to be really important, to actually really understand what's happening before they make decisions. And I think a lot of organisations pay lip service to that, I certainly work with a lot of organisations who employ a lot of people with the word analyst in their job title. When push comes to shove, there isn't a lot of analysis going on. There's a lot of data being moved around. There's a lot of interpretation of things that have happened. But the problem with focusing on things that have happened is that you are driving your car using the rear view mirror more than you are the windscreen. And a lot of organisations mm. that we work with are perhaps a little focused on that. And but in the work you've done in contact centres then, I guess, do you, have you found, without wanting to generalise, but have you found given the collection of data mm-hmm. and measuring, certainly from an operational point of view, measuring everything, mm-hmm. average handle time, yep. shift of schedule adherence, yep. seat utilisation, all this sort of stuff, that's kind of embedded in most contact centres so has that helped when you've gone in that they've already got that kind of understanding or coll- the methodology by which they collect data? Yeah, yeah. So the, 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 the key point there is if you're going to gather and manage information, if you've already got the processes and tools in place that enable you to do that, it makes the next parts of the process much easier. And one thing I say to all organisations, and this isn't a contact centre orientated uh, issue at all, is that all of us, all organisations, my organisation, your organisation, are effectively data processing engines. 
we all take information mm. from our clients, from our customers, from the feedback that we get at large. And we, we hope, if we're a good organisation, an effective organisation, we refine that biomass of data into something that's valuable and then we process that and ultimately our product at the end of it is improved. Yeah. Whether we're making something or servicing something, we are better tomorrow than we were yesterday because of that information. And so if we can make use of that information intelligently and, and act on it intelligently, that, that, that's crucial. And, and as, as I explain the sort of process that we see in organisations, we'll see that there is a sort of divergence between people that worship data for data's sake and organisations that actually do something intelligent with it. And they're not all, it's not always apparent at the outset. So the first part is get that information, cherish it, understand it and do something with it other than just categorise it. Right. Because some organisations can literally categorise it and move on and some organizations don't really analyze at all but narrative and storytelling will effectively be rebadged as analysis and then they believe their own stories and move on from there and one of the things that I've spoken about in the past is that I, I genuinely believe there is a there is a sort of there's a battle being waged within organizations in the 21st century between analysis and narrative between facts and between storytelling. And it's not just, we know it's not just held to, to, to organizations, to the corporate world. It's, in, it's, it's as rife in politics and society as it is anywhere. But there are blurred lines. And I talk to people a lot who'll say, oh yeah, you know, we, we, we analyze this and we analyze that. And, and, and there's nothing of the sort going on. They're just taking opinion and trying to organize opinion in a coherent, watertight way. And there's a big difference. I mean. Sometimes you can, you know, if you put on the radio or the TV or whatever it is, you, you won't have to be listening to a news program very long before you'll hear an exchange that goes along the lines of, you know, no over to Chris at Westminster today um, for some analysis. And Chris will say, thank you very much. Um, fascinating day in Westminster today. What I think is, mm. it's introduced as analysis but actually what's delivered is narrative. And that's not necessarily a big deal because that person is quite intelligent and they probably are analytically minded. But the point is, it isn't analysis. It's one person's opinion based on often a lot of intelligence and experience. And we do find that in the workplace as well, that it's often the loudest, most compelling, most charismatic, most uh, the best communicators that are able to drive the organization's decision making but is it genuine, genuinely analytical and so one of the things you have to do when you have a process of complex structured problem solving which root cause analysis is is to actually say are you really are, are you really looking at data or are you just believing the most compelling stories and that's often quite revealing the two are very different very often how do you how do you mitigate against so how would how what do you say to a company then that says you've got to be mindful of this. And they go, okay, what should we do or not do? What should we do or not do to make sure that yeah. data is as rich as it can be? Well, the first thing is you- Or that you're not turning it into a narrative. Is this, where com is it, is this confirmation bias or oh, not? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, we are we're often at the outset with organizations, we're, we're dealing with, with, with you know, optimism bias, what have we got? Hofstadter's law, things always take twice as long as you think they're gonna take, even if you take Hofstadter's law into account. You know, confirmation. What's that as law? Yeah, that that is exactly it. It's that 
Hofstadter's law is, so I'll give you an example of working. Hofstadter's law at work is probably best described as, hi Martin, have you got five minutes? Right, okay. <laughs> How long does that five minutes generally take? It's never five minutes. No, it's yeah. probably 15 minutes. And even if you know it's not going to take five minutes, it still takes longer than you thought it was. And actually most organisations have that that bias in place, don't they? that optimism bias that projects are going to be quicker or cheaper and right. faster yeah. and more effective than they ultimately are. And part of part of that optimism is a good thing. Optimism is, is it can fuel the business, um, but there are different types of optimism. And the best organisations have a look at all the evidence, build a good strategy and a good plan, and then are optimistic that, that will work, rather than just thinking, I'm sure we can do it, let's find the facts later. I haven't answered your question though, so go back to your question. I, I, I think that comes further down the line. So you can't say to an organisation, you need to be more fact-based, because they'll say, absolutely damn right we do, we will be, and nothing changes. Mm. So. You have to give people the tools to be able to, to be more fact-based. And the most powerful tool you can give people when it comes to problem solving or strategy is the knowledge to build effective teams. So organizations that, that tend to struggle with problem solving tend to silo their problem solving into certain streams of the organization or even worse still into, into individuals. And there's nothing more exhausting than being, you know, that lone individual trying to solve complex problems in an organisation. I mean, it's brutal. You know, that's a that's a one-way ticket to stress. If ever there's one, it's a bad place to be. So one of the things as as part of managing and gathering data that we'll say to organisations is, you know, make it make it team-based. Give your teams time. Give them resources. It can feel like a little bit of an investment at the outset. But it's an investment, it's a good investment, it will pay massive dividends. And ultimately, once what you, what you find is that it's narrative doesn't last very long when it's being looked at from multiple perspectives. Uh, so uh. if you've got a good team of people and you say, well, okay, this is, this is what we think is happening or this is what we think we need to deal with, if you've got a good team, they'll they'll scrutinise that, and that that's the first thing that you can do. You need to organisations that are good at solving problems recognise that problems don't live in just one pocket of the organisation. You know they bleed all over it very very quickly if they're big enough. So you you know contact sense is a prime example. You know how quickly now can a small problem migrate across an entire organisation? You know, it can do it with the power of social media. It can happen in an instant now. Mm. So to, to, to sort of to accept that problems are like a forest fire you know, in strong winds, but then think, well, we can solve our problems in just one part of the organisation, to, to, to strikes me as a, as, a, as, a, as a risky strategy going forward. So would you say this is kind of, so people with the right intentions mm-hmm. might say, we're going to undertake problem solving. Yeah using data yeah but they then turn it into like a organizational game of cluedo yeah where there has to be either an individual or a team that is responsible for that problem yeah a hundred percent um individual or team um and also responsible ultimately for the solutions martin and if you're only seeing a problem from one perspective, how can you possibly come up with a set of solutions that are going to solve it? Because you will see that problem from your perspective and your perspective alone. When I'm training, one of the things I'll do, I do, I show 
groups of, 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 of individuals in the training environment a video and I say, okay, don't speak to anybody else in the room, write down on this post-it note what you think the problem is that needs solving. It's a really straightforward video and I'll have, if I've got 20 people in the room, I'll have at least 10 different definitions of the problem. Now, if you think about that from an organisational point of view, and, we've, and this is a scenario that most people will recognise, you'll sit in a room and let's say, Martin, you're chairing it, you'll say, okay, everybody, thanks for making the time to come in today. We all know we've got a serious problem, so, you know, we all know what it is. Your fist will hit the table and say, okay, what are we going to do about it? And what That's happened? not my style. But no, but, you know, yeah. bad Martin. <laughs> yeah, dark but, Yeah, Martin. dark Martin might say, okay, you know, we all know what the problem is, guys. Come on, let's get on with it. Let's solve it, which feels quite empowering. Mm. But what it doesn't recognise is that the 10 people around the table, they've got about half a dozen different ideas of what the problem is. And that manifests itself by the fact that half an hour into it, you start to realise as chair of that meeting that everybody's putting in different directions. And then mm. you start to say to people, well, what does the problem mean to you? You discover that it means very different things to different people. If you're in commerce, if you're in finance, if you're in technical, if you're in you know, customer service, customer experience, it's all hurt people in different ways in terms of the pain that is delivered to the organisation. And therefore, they've all defined it sometimes quite differently. Well, if you've all got different definitions of the problem, good luck with finding a solution. Mm. There's absolutely no mm. coherency in that process. So getting, getting good teams of people together to look at what's happened, to understand it from multiple perspectives, to try and get a 360 degree perspective of the problem is really important. Once you've got that, it's the much easier then to go to the sort of second stage of root cause analysis, which is defining the problem. Because if you've got a focal point for that problem, i.e., this is what it is. You know, we've 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 lost eight thousand customers this month, or we've, you know, our, our service levels have dropped below whatever metric we put in place. That is a definable problem to solve. Mm. There will be multiple ways to solve it, but at least we know where we start. And the next part of that is, and this is where so many organisations I think fall down, is they once they've defined a problem, or very well, or sometimes even badly. The one thing they don't truly understand is what is the genuine impact of that problem? So they'll often have one of the impacts, the headline impact. So if they're a financial institution, for example, it might be a fine. So let's say we've had a problem that's involved our client base and the, the impact of that was a 10 million pound fine, let's say. It's very easy to say, well, that's the impact of the problem. What we often find is we say, well, okay, was there anything else? And organisations will say, well, actually, we did have to also offer um, some sort of financial ref you know, mm. refunds to the clients, compensation, I should say. Okay, well, how much was that? Might be another 10 million, let's say. Well, how did you do that? Did you have to put a dedicated contact team together to handle this? Because it was obviously quite a significant, let's call it a data breach. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, need, we had 60 people together for four months to do that. Okay, you paid them, presumably. Oh, yeah, well, what did that cost you? That's another layer. Okay, and what about after that? Well, yeah, we had to keep 10 of those people together for another year. What about, um, what about your media? You know, how did you... How reputation. Did you, yeah, how did you manage reputational mm. damage? Oh, well, we took adverts out in the paper and we did a social media campaign to sort of backfill that. Well, how much did all that cost? And suddenly you find something that was a £10 million problem that perhaps effectively had its feet firmly placed in customer service was actually a 30 or 40 million pound problem that was actually handled by the entire organization. And again, moving to solutions, the solution budget, let's say, for a 10 million pound problem 
I suspect is slightly different to one for a 40 million pound problem. Mm, okay. So that's that also that misunderstanding of the impact of a problem is also something that we we see quite quite regularly. Do you, would you recommend people so in that example you've given um, is it best practice or is it advisable to keep the in this case it was you, you turned it into a pound amount, right? Mm -hmm. So because you must have had people that go, well, we probably lost new customers as a result of the reputation yeah. in this example. Yeah, if trust pilots dropped or whatever. Yeah, yeah. do they, is it best, is it better that, that that is then turned into a forecasted pound amount so you have this impact of the problem or does it not? I'm not sure that necessarily that that, 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 that is, I mean, the answer to that is yes. So root cause analysis sits in part of, a, for most organizations, fits in part, fits in the middle of a wider problem management process. Okay. It doesn't replace an existing one. It, it's the sort of, it's the analytical tool and mindset behavior that sits in the middle of wider problem management. So, and every organization will have its unique way of dealing with its, with its organizational problems. And that will be driven by historical factors, the sector they're in, leadership and so on and so forth. And that's fine. So we don't perhaps, we won't get to the point where we'll say, well, you need to do this because they, they know what they need to do. Mm, yeah. And certainly if that isn't working for them in the long term, they'll address it. But what we do once they've got the data and they've understood the problem fully, we then start to get analytical. We then say, well, okay, you know, we talked to you earlier about, you know, what's the difference between narrative and analysis and what does that really mean? And the heart of a good root cause analysis process is the analysis of genuine cause and effect. And that's the thing that most of us have migrated away from as we've got older. And that, for some people, that's quite challenging. And for other people, it is the, one of the, it's a game-changing way of thinking. So... We get to the point where we say, okay, let's look at cause and effect here. What happened to cause this? And most of us will say, you know, the, the problem was X and the cause was Y. And that's fine. That's great. And most of us live our lives through that. We tend to also have people who are slightly more analytical in their thinking and they'll start to break it down. You know, you've got the phrase, you know, peel the onion. Okay, well, let's, 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 let's not just assume it was just this. And what they'll often create in terms of mapping things out amongst problem-solving teams, they'll do something called, a, a, sometimes it's known as a five whys. And what it means is you ask why five times to get to the root cause. So it might be, um, you know, we, we upset a customer, why? Um, well, we gave them the wrong information, why? Well, we logged in on the wrong screen, why? Well, we were in a bit of a hurry, why? Because we were understaffed. And the root cause of that is we were understaffed. And that's great, it starts to drive it back. But actually, when you really get analytical and you really start looking into cause and effect, what you quickly recognize is that the behaviors that we all exhibit, the actions we all undertake, whether it's work-wise, social-wise, day-to-day, um, professional, it doesn't work in, in tidy, linear lines. That's not how we work. We don't go through a series of doorways. We, we make a lot of simultaneous cause and effect choices so it might be if we go back to the example it would be well okay we, we, we've, we've lost a customer why we gave them the wrong information well every time we give them the wrong information do we lose a customer well actually now you come to ask no we don't so there must be more at play so what could that have been 
well, the person dealing with that customer was, was quite new. They weren't so comfortable in, in dealing with, with conflict and they didn't react as quickly. Well, okay, every time we give someone the wrong information and we've got somebody new, does that mean we're going to lose them? Well, no, not necessarily, because what that individual didn't do is they didn't pass them over to somebody else. All oh, right, so what you've actually got here is you've got the wrong information, you've got a new member of staff, and they weren't able, for whatever reason, to pass them over to a more able member of staff, a more confident member of staff who's dealt with these issues before. So you've got three issues there, and you can break each one of those down individually as well. Well, why did we give them the wrong information? Why did we have a new member of staff on at that point with that customer? Why couldn't we get them across to somebody else? And that is actually real life. Mm, it's not yeah. these series of lines that happen and in everything in a neat world, you have a whole set of these issues taking place that coincide. And what you quickly find is when you start to look at things analytically and you start to you know, draw it out on a whiteboard or use post-it notes or use software, is the problem often it's the first things that happen after the problem or the things that initially cause the problem often involve a human being. But you don't have to look very far before you quickly move out of the realms of what people did into why they did it and the things around them from a systemic or structural point of view that made it quite likely for that individual to do that in those situations. And that's the light bulb moment for most people in root cause analysis, whether they're dealing with complex engineering teams or whether they're dealing with um, you know, contact centre teams. It can be, it's often the same thing, get past the people and start to look at the structural things we can do as an organisation to get the best out of people and to make the business more robust. And on the flip side, if you don't do that and your solutions always orientate around people, you end up with a certain set, well, I don't know whether we invented this term or whether it's just a term in general use, but we call it the three R's. Most organisations who focus on individuals as the source of their problems, primarily their solutions, often well in, with, with good intentions, are to, to retrain people, to rewrite the procedure or to re-communicate more clearly. Well, the point is we all know that those things have limited success when it comes to solutions because mm -hmm. they were doing their best anyway. Yeah. You know, they weren't. They didn't come into work yeah. that day thinking, "I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to really upset some customers." They're doing their best, just retraining them or rewriting documents which they probably didn't read in the first place, or or saying the same thing over and over again in a different accent, more loudly, or whatever makes no difference in the long run. We know that when we look at what that does, you get a very quick uptake on improvement that drifts back to where it was straight away, and that focus often the other. The other aspect of that is that if you do get caught up in that cycle of the three R's, and, they, and, and they're not terrible things to do, but if you do get caught up in that, you tend to stop looking elsewhere. Mm. You tend to stop looking at all the other structural and systemic improvements that we can make. So going back to James Vowles at you know, Mercedes F1, there's only so much pressure you can put on the driver to drive that car quickly before he crashes. Everything else around that driver has to be perfect, and then you get close to perfection. And I don't think that our organisations are any different in a contact centre sense or, or any other business that we look at. You can easily get this focus on the individuals, the variables, at the expense of the constants, which is the structure. And it's understandable because we're humans. 
we see human failure and we understand it and we gravitate towards it. We think we can fix it quickly. It feels good to have a chat, to rewrite a document, to speak, you know, to, to, to retrain people. It, it, it feels great, but actually, how much does it really work? So getting that visual analysis and it is really revealing because you quickly find, even the most blame-orientated individuals tend to look at it when you visually chart out all the things that came together to create a problem. Even people who are very blame-orientated will look at it and think, it wasn't really the person, was it? And we, at that point, we don't have to persuade people it wasn't the person. Yeah. At that point, they've done the work themselves. They'll mm. look at it and think, I think we might have been doing this wrong. I think we need to look at this from a different perspective. Do you find that? I mean, I love this example of this new agent in this, and it's come back to the going, oh, this person um, made a mistake. Mm. Why? Mm. Do you, have you found in your experience that there is, um, again, good intentions, but that people will seek out and jump to the first solution that yeah. they can and then that is it because they go great we found it great yeah. next because yeah. i'm just thinking about the environments that i've worked in where and i think lots and lots of people listening will tell you um your, your role as a contact center manager for example you're moving from one fire to another Correct. and the, the aim is to put them out as quickly as possible Correct and get on with it and you yep. get to the end of the day and you're exhausted and you go but you know what solved loads of problems today yep. sorted loads of stuff out yep. so that desire to get to that solution yep. quickly there's yeah, yeah that's a scenario that i recognize from my own professional life um and it's a it's a scenario that i can assure you whether you whether you're a, a civil engineer working on the highways or the water systems or whether you're working in a contact center um, or whether you're working in accountancy, you are a firefighter. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with firefighting. There's nothing wrong with quick fixes at all. They're absolutely essential. The problem isn't the existence of quick fixes. And the problem isn't the employment of people that are good at fixing them. The problem comes when that's all you do. Mm. The problem comes when that becomes the overriding behavior at the expense of absolutely everything else. So in the same way that training people and communicating and rewriting documents, you know, isn't a problem unless it's the only thing you do, putting out fires quickly, quick fixes are not a problem unless that's all you do. And you're absolutely right, there's a human nature aspect of it. There's a feeling of job satisfaction that I've put out loads of fires today and that makes me good at my job. Now it undoubtedly does. But if all you're doing is dealing with the symptoms, what do you think tomorrow is going to be like? Mm. Tomorrow will be more of today mm. and ad infinitum. Great organisations will recognise that there's two, there's two tracks to go down here. We don't divert resources away from quick fixes because we're reliant upon them. But equally, we need to start to get to the we need to start to get to the root causes of this because if we can find more of these smaller root causes, there'll be slightly fewer fires tomorrow than there were today. And, and, and these root causes, they often are not big issues. They're often not expensive solutions. They're often rearrangement of resources that already exist or reallocation of issues. Um, and I think also as individuals, and I'm, you may recognize this from your own career, I certainly recognize it from mine, is that quick fixes are great, and when you're in your early career, first five or even ten years, depending upon how quickly you progress through an organisation, quick fixes are the sort of thing you gain your reputation from. 
Mm. If you're good at coming up with quick solutions, you get a biscuit and a pat on the back and you feel good about yourself. As you become more senior in an organisation, and again, I'm sure you'll recognise this, quick fixes are the thing that trip you up. Mm. If, and the problem is, for a lot of us, we get so heavily rewarded for doing quick fixes in the early part of our career that they become hardwired, mm. that we actually don't go beyond the A to B, put a solution in there, one solution will fix it. And of course, one solution won't fix it because if it was a one solution problem, we would have no problems in our organisations by now. We'd have dealt with them generations ago. Mm. Quick fixes literally keep you operational. They very often it's, do it's very just, little. It's that example you've given. I, I know firsthand I would have been involved in situations where somebody said this information was given to the customer incorrectly mm-hmm. and straight away I'm thinking, tell me about the person. Yeah. Oh, they, they were new. It must be about our induction then, or yeah. they're relatively experienced. Is our K base, is our knowledge base giving out the wrong information? Mm-hmm. Fix that. Yeah. Great. Next. All of which will be right. You know, I'm, the walk, answers, I'm walking yeah. around like the West Wing with yeah. people stood behind yeah. you going, what about this? Yeah. What about that? Yeah, exactly. And, and, the, and the fact is that you are right. That may well have been one of the factors. And it may well have been a predominant factor, but it won't be the only factor. Because and that's what I love. When you start to map it out, you start to see that all these different problems that manifest themselves, particularly in a contact centre, which is the sharp end of any organisation, you'll often find that they have shared heritage. There's certain areas where actually if you solve that, you don't just solve that problem, you solve a host of other problems which have manifested in different ways and or are yet to manifest or are sitting in our system as risk. And it's only through the hard work and sacrifice of the individuals in the contact centre that stop this risk becoming real. And we can easily become focused on the on the short-term symptoms. The, the funny thing is, one of the, one of, when, I, when we do a lot of the cause and effect analysis, a lot of people say, oh, it's, it's quite complex, isn't it? You know, what we're, what, we're, what we're bringing out here and how we're building it. And in one respect, they're right, but in another respect, they're, they're, they're not. Because in actual fact, you know, we, we've, we've, got, we've both got children, haven't we? Children are really good at that type of analysis because they don't take anything at face value. They don't make assumptions and they ask why all the time. Every mm. parent knows, you know, you, mm. need to, you need to tidy your room. Why? Well, because, yeah. you know, why? Well, you know, grandma's coming around. Why? Well, she wants to see you. Why? You know, so yeah. we actually yeah. do, as children, we break things down. As adults, we, we actually don't like doing that anymore. We fill all that with assumptions. And those assumptions are little bridges over logic. And if you think about cause and effect looking like the branches of a tree, all the assumptions that we have and the expertise, they're little hyperlinks that miss out the branches. And most problem solvers just do this hyperlink from the, from the, from the problem to the primary cause and they try and attach a kind of catch-all super solution. Seen this before, I know yeah. the answer. Well, exactly, I know what to do. So <clears throat> what you tend to find is that as we get more confident, and I probably say overconfident, if you imagine that you've got you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you imagine you, at the top of the page you've got you know, the word problem and at the bottom of the page you've got the word solution, in the middle of those two words you've got analysis, you've got cause and effect, you've got understanding. Okay? Most organisations and most 
confident people, unless they've trained themselves otherwise, go straight from problem to solution. They reach into their backpack mm. and they grab the, the, the catch-all solution that worked for them last time or they feel confident using, and they don't go anywhere near understanding of that specific problem. They'll f that, what they replace that with is their learned knowledge, mm. which may or may not be a true yeah. representation of what yeah. happened. Put a solution in place, move on, come back tomorrow, you've got the same problem again, but often, you know, just as in human bodies, the same problem tends to manifest itself differently. You know, viruses find the weak part of the organisation. So, you know, the problem may have manifested itself in one part of the contact centre on Monday, it's actually a different part of the contact centre on Tuesday, but ultimately it's the same illness, it's the same yeah. root cause that's yeah. there. It's just that you've kind of put a patch on one part and it's sort of squirted it upstream or downstream or whatever it might be. So you tend to find that analysis tends to reveal to people that not only is it not wholly the individuals, the individuals are often a consequence of deeper seated problems that we can actually tackle, but also, as you, as you rightly said five minutes ago, there's multiple places where we can intercept those and put solutions in place. In fact, if anything, there's too many places. And then we don't become reliant upon that unicorn fix, that, that magic bullet mm. to solve the problem. And actually we can start to be proactive as well as reactive at that point. And that is a real game change for people when they start to think mm. that way. And it doesn't have to be a formal process. Once you start to teach people to think in that way that combines their undoubted expertise and knowledge of their sector with a more sort of cold-hearted logical analytical model as well they then start to unify the great skills and knowledge they have with a really robust method and at that point you're turbocharging their, their solution process and, and all of a sudden they're able to put solutions in that actually last a lot longer that are a lot more sustainable that are proactive and that's what we tend to see in organisations, that they look beyond the symptoms in a, in a meaningful way for the first time. And one of the great, without a shadow of doubt, one of the, one of the it wasn't ever, I don't think, one of the intended consequences of, of root cause analysis and its various models, but by taking the onus off of the individuals, without losing accountability, by the way, mm. but by taking the focus purely off the individual, that's very reassuring for organisations because stress levels go down, people recognise that they're part of a wider system and that successes and failures aren't just down to them and actually you start to form stronger teams as a result of it. And we don't have to, as an organisation, we don't have to manipulate that. Mm. Once we teach people the process and the way of looking and the way of thinking, it's an inevitable conclusion they come to and it, and it manifests itself without any further work. They have the full impact of that because that, that last point you said there, just made me think about you know every every company even the most progressive ones have their their internal challenges and politics or whatever of course this is most effective i guess what you guys do and this root cause analysis when you have the senior leadership buy-in yeah linking it to a strategy or always comes top down mind doesn't it really i mean you you if you've got senior management buy-in um then you know, everybody falls into line and, and starts to go into it with that sort of positive mind. If you haven't got that, that's much more difficult. In a funny kind of way, I, I think our jobs have become much easier in the last 10 years because of this whole concept of marginal gains. So marginal gains for those people that, that, that aren't so familiar with it is this concept of actually, the, the James Vowles concept, that actually we don't 
the low hanging fruit's been picked a while ago, but if we can have a, a method to improve all the little things we do, those will aggregate and those will push us forward. And more than that, it's not the fact that we just randomly find some small things and hope that somehow that helps, that we actually have a systematic method that we go through that reveals all the things we can do, provides a hierarchy and enables us to pick them off and apply them to the business in the way that will be most optimised. And they don't, none of them individually will make a huge difference to the mm. organisation, but as a group, they will push us forward to a level in which, which was un, unobtainable before. And that's been... That's been popularised in, in professional cycling, yeah. in Formula One. It's, it's gravitated into football and rugby. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a well-manifested process now. But what it is, is root cause analysis. It, but instead of looking at all the potential problems we have as an organisation, you just flip it around and you say, well, what are all the potential opportunities? Not just the ones we know, but the ones we haven't even thought of. And a, and a good process, a good analytical process, will deliver you a lot of the things that... Well, when Martin and I were at university, it was about the time of the first Iraq war, wasn't it? And Donald Rumsfeld yeah. was the Secretary of Defence. And you might remember at the time, he came out... Unlikely. Said, yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I can rob your memory. He said, it's, it's, the thing that worries us is the unknown unknowns. Mm. He said, he said, you know, there's the knowns, the known knowns, the unknown knowns, and then there's these things called the unknown unknowns. This is the stuff that we haven't even thought about. Mm. This is the stuff, we don't even know this is a problem because we just, we have no comprehension of it. And the funny thing was, at the time, all the journalists were like, unknown unknowns, what is Rumsfeld on about? This is just nonsense. Mumbo jumbo. Yeah, it's mumbo yeah. jumbo. He'd been, he'd been, the previous year, had done a secondment at NASA, who are like who are like the, the the daddies of root cause analysis, and they use root cause analysis in their big sophisticated projects, not just to try and get better at what they know could be a problem, but to reveal all the unknown unknowns. What's the stuff that could go wrong in this project that we haven't even considered? We don't even. It, it, it's a theoretical risk at the moment. How can we start to to recognise what that is? And so Rumsfeld had seen these, you know, had, had taken this on board and said, well, actually, in the theatre of war, that's what we're dealing with here. So you journalists can sit here and tell me, well, what about this? What about that? He said, I'm not worried about any of that because I, I know that can all happen. The stuff that keeps me awake at night is the things we haven't even thought of. And the organisations are the same. You must need some real creativity to be able to, based in knowledge, but I'm thinking of so in NASA and people, are mm -hmm. they as part of their cadence and routines yep, yep. are saying now we're going to try and uncover the unknown unknowns yes yeah, yeah they must need people to try and be creative well it's, be creative at that point or do you know that's a really good question and like all good questions there's a yes and a no element to it so really good organizations that are really effective at solving problems or, or not even organizations teams teams that are good at solving problems bring together not just people with diverse professional expertise, but that is crucial if you really want to see a complex problem from every perspective, but also people with different approaches, different mindsets. And we all recognise that there are some people that we work with that are incredibly logical and some people who are, who are much more creative thinkers. And a good problem-solving team brings both of those sets together. And, and I think 
that can often be overlooked, but overlooked at an organization's peril. Because very often teams will put, organizations will put together a team of really you know, great analytical thinkers. And actually they'll come up with loads of good stuff, but they can't really communicate it. And they don't really understand how all the things they've discovered really manifest themselves in the organization. And when it comes to solutions, they tend to propose a lot of, you know, what are theoretically really good functional solutions, but you try getting them implemented in a contact center environment or any other environment for that matter. You know, good luck with that. You know, they're just yeah. not fit yeah. for purpose in the wider yeah. sense. And then on the other side, you can often have organisations that, that, that where problem solving becomes a, you know, a remit of like these, these sort of blue sky thinkers, these really creative thinkers. And, think, and, and then all the solutions can feel a bit fluffy and yeah. zany and a bit mm. like, and, and actually the, the logical thinkers in your organisation are really sceptical about that. They're like, well... Never going to happen. It's never going to happen, mm. mate. Yeah, brilliant. I'm mm. sure it looked good when you did it in a PowerPoint presentation, but I'm not doing it. Mm. And the customers wouldn't like it anyway. So you've got no buy-in. Best organisations actually implement a process where those two types of solution problem solvers can work together effectively so to answer your question about do you have to be creative the point is if you, or do you need a creative person in the room yeah, you need logical thinkers to actually sort of chart chart out and understand analytically what is it that we're really looking at here if they can drive that then the creative thinkers can say well okay these are all the various aspects at play now let's come up with solutions that will make a make a meaningful difference. And actually, you know, they'll be effective. Fine, um, we can actually implement them. Uh, they won't sink us financially, and, and most importantly of all, that there won't be some hidden consequences of these solutions further down the line that are going to come back and haunt us. Because that's the thing that's often overlooked when we're looking at solutions. And what are the consequences of 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 this and you know when I'm when I'm training you know I have to I have to sort of explain these terms in kind of like high impact examples and this the one I use and, and it's pretty full on but it seems to get the message ahead is you know after we had it after after the after 9-11 uh, the, the International Aviation Authority decided that you know we would we have to get it so that flight teams can lock themselves in the cockpit of planes very sensible Several years after that, you'll remember you had the German Wings incident with Andreas Luber, who was the pilot who was able to lock himself in the flight deck and then ditch his plane with the passengers on board. That was a fantastic solution based on the 9-11 scenario, but the consequences of doing that were that he could do that. And now things have moved on, now new solutions have come in place to make sure that that type of issue can't, can't repeat itself. But organisations need to think in those terms. Okay, we've got this great solution, but what happens if we put it in place? And our organisations are far more complex than we give them credit for. It's very, very hard to recognise what those solutions might do either externally or internally as an organisation. And is that mitigated then by, let's say there are people listening who haven't even done, have never done this before, mm -hmm they put it in place is it just as important as putting it in place as to then have to regularly review it even if there are not problems there's always problems martin <laughs> yeah you know i mean all that what 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 will happen is what what happens is when you when you build a process of root cause analysis into into an organization environment it'll either be used quite formally 
in terms of people follow the process or very or on certain occasions it will become more of an informal mindset of way of working and that works either way that both both of which are good okay. good outcomes your problems just your orientation of problems switch I mean, most of your environment changes as well and yeah, the environment always yeah. changes so you've always got that you've always got an overload of complexity that's 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 the nature of things but 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 in actual fact one of the things we often hear from senior management teams is, okay, once we've solved these issues, once we've done that, you know, where do we go from there? You know, does, does it, does it, do we not need it so much? That's not what happens. Often they'll find a really fast dividend, they'll solve a lot of problems, and that starts to free people up to actually solve the problems that really need solving. So once you've taken some of the, some of the firefighting requirements away, your problem solvers can start to concentrate on the things that are really going to make a difference to your business, mm. the value-added mm. aspects of, of, mm. of what you do. So your problems, instead of being negative events, start to become positive opportunities. So you, people start to use the same analytical methods and processes. They think, well, okay, you know, we were losing more clients than we wanted. We've, we've, we've stemmed that now. Let's use the analytical method to work out, well, how can we recruit more clients? Or how can we, how can we recruit more staff? How can mm. we retain mm. more staff? Mm. How, can we, how can we sell more product? How can we stop people dropping away from our sales funnel? Whatever it might be. Mm. Once you've got that mindset of thinking, okay, well, I'm going to get all the data first. I'm going, to, I'm going to fully understand the problem before we do anything. We're actually going to be quite analytical and actually look at what really happened, not just what we thought happened. And then we're going to look at a set of solutions that, that, that are applicable, both in terms of how, where they're placed, but also what they cost and how effective they're going to be and, and on all of those other aspects. And that's a tool that you never lose. So it doesn't have to be formal. It can be informal. It can be a way of thinking and a way of acting. And the final part of the, the kind of root cause analysis process is, is that concept of lessons learned and institutional learning or corporate memory or whatever term an organization uses because they they all have different terms for it but you know your knowledge base your your, your kind of k base whatever it might be if you've got a process which is gathering information in a largely factual environment and understanding our problems from a broader perspective from a 360 degree view and we're getting relatively forensic about it you start to build up one hell of a one hell of a knowledge base really quickly and you really start to have something that you can you can learn from which you know ultimately is your, is your final dividend when it comes to doing things in this more kind of systematic structured way um, and, and, and that's crucial because most organizations or not most but many organizations that we work with they'll claim to have something like that in place but it's not as robust as they, they think it is either the information is not being gathered particularly well or even if it is gathered well it's not accessed once it's gathered it's not shared it's not accessible it's not understandable well, there's no real learning going on there how would you um one you've probably been saying you know you kind of go on courses or you read loads of different books and things like that. Um, one of the things I can remember is, is this the concept of the debrief? Mm -hmm. So it was, I think it's called Flawless Execution. It was written by um, the American fighter pilot, okay. fighter yep. pilots, and there's loads of good stuff in it. But one of the things I remember being that they stressed, and I might have this completely wrong, but it's, this is what has stuck with me, is um, 
the concept of the debrief. Mm -hmm. So in terms of that debrief and being able to do something like that within a fast-paced environment, how, how would you suggest you, people do that? There's two ways of, of dealing with it. I mean, the first thing to say is, if you look at elite sport, if you look at the military, for example, they're two great um, examples of, of, of organisations that have a, a single objective to deal with, and that debrief is absolutely crucial. In most organisations that we're working within, there's multiple objectives across, across departments, across teams, across the whole organisation, sometimes across multiple territories, in national and international, so that's never so easy. Essentially, the answer... And some of those objectives might... Be conflict? Yeah. Without a shadow of doubt. And, and often when you're looking at solutions, if you're dealing with firefighting and, and, and corrective solutions, often they're quite easy to do because they're quite contained within our team. You know, X equaled Y, well, let's deal with X and we'll get a different outcome. When you're dealing with more strategic uh, challenges within an organisation, it's very rare that those don't involve bringing multiple teams, multiple departments together. And at that point, you're dealing with those conflicts of interest. And then it become, the, the solution process becomes much harder but if you've done your analysis correctly and everybody's and, and, and a problem is is accurately um, accurately described, then that helps because if you've got an evidence-based delivery of what the problem is, it's much less likely to end up in conflict because it either happened or it didn't, or this was either a cause or or it wasn't. But getting that debrief together without ending up with a you know paralysis by analysis is, is, is the art. There needs to be an efficiency in it and an organisation that perhaps, if you look at the traditional way people would do that, would be about building problem-solving teams. They'd have strategic teams and individuals dotted throughout an organisation and they would form those sort of centres of excellence when it came to learning from problems and they would come together or they will come together either weekly or monthly or whatever time frame is appropriate and share lessons learned. And Learn. is that... Is that more than a process improvement team? Or it will probably could be well. It could, it could be partly process improvement team, your continuous improvement team, which, which as I said before, root cause analysis can it doesn't take over from a problem management or continuous improvement uh, team. It becomes the analytical engine that sits in the middle of that to effectively right. turbocharge what already exists in the organisation and to bring things back to what this, you know, the Enlightenment scientists used to call first principles. What do we know? Okay, okay, we know that. That's great. And is that where people should start? Yeah, what do we know? What do we know? That's, what, that's mm. how your children start. Yeah. What do I know? Yeah. Don't make assumptions. Mm. It's why kids are so good at picking up a piece of tech and making it work straight away and us 40-somethings just fumble around with it because... We don't look at it for what it is. We, we, we look at a piece of tech and we think, well, the last piece of tech I had did this. So if I do the same again, it's going to work. And it takes us consequently three times as long to get to master it. Not because it's hard and not because we're stupid, but because we're trying to effectively crowbar information mm. that we've learned previously into an environment where it's not relevant. And actually, we do, I think we do that at work a lot. We say, well, yeah. this is what happened last time. I'm just going to crowbar the, that into this scenario because it looks like it largely fits. Close enough. Yeah, it's close enough. And we often don't find out mm. the consequences of that way of thinking until much further down the line, um, by which time often they're quite masked and we can't 
can't link it back to our earlier decision making. So what do we know? What do we know? Okay, we know that. What do we know next? Start to understand and communicate. And then ultimately, I suppose what you'll see more of today is, is the involvement of, of, of software being brought into root cause analysis and, and problem solving where you start to see um, you start to see the um, output of analytical thinking in terms of reporting and trends and common cause and uh, all of those aspects and then we can start to be really quite intuitive and analytical and intelligent about about problem solving so I want to make sure because this has been fascinating but I want to make sure that, that recap to get those kind of five things can you yeah. just go through them again okay well you've got essentially five stepping stones five lily pads i suppose to to, to to get across the pond and you could probably break them down in, into 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 small into into smaller steps but you're ultimately your five to, to, to keep you honest are firstly get the information analyze and gather the information so build a good team and get them to gather as much legitimate evidence about the issue what happened and don't just rely on you know weaker evidence it's you know evidence has a hierarchy not all evidence is equal and this is that point around data versus narrative right yeah well this starts you on the right path mm. so at this point we're actually narrative tends to grow in the space where data is absent Nice. You know, and, that, and yeah. that's that's true for all of yeah. us. What yeah. many of us don't like to admit, we don't know things. Yeah. So what do we do in that situation? We just talk. We we, we effectively <laughs> fill it, fill the space full of, you know, yeah. this could have happened, this might have happened, assumptions. And the thing about narrative as well is that when someone tells you a story, as long as it's pretty compelling, most yeah. of us don't 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 question it. People that would have listened to my last town hall internally will absolutely. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we just, we just. He's just talking until he remembers yeah. what he's meant to say. <laughs> Seems legitimate. It's interesting. It looks it's funny. Yeah, yeah, it looks trustworthy. Narrative is great like that, and and the human brain is 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 hardwired to fill in the gaps. And when someone tells you a compelling story, they often don't give you much detail. Mm. It tends to be the action points, the exciting things that happened, and then you fill in the details. But the trouble is, if, if you're telling 10 people the same story, they all fill in the blanks differently. And that mm. is where the problem comes from further down the line, because as people start to understand and solve the problem, they've actually filled all the gaps with, with, with completely contradictory information. Mm. And therefore their motivations for acting and the likely outcomes they're gonna come out with are very different. So some information is great and some organizations and some contact centers will have, a, will have almost more information than you're ever gonna need. You, you conceivably could drown in it. Mm. But there's other environments in the, working, in the working space where information is really hard to come by. So um, we sometimes operate in, in areas of the prison service or healthcare or, 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 or care, you know, care in the community at large you know, and when things go really badly wrong in those environments, there's often very little data. You're often dealing with he said and she said. Sometimes, mm. particularly if you've got substance abuse at play, you've got mm. lots of unreliable sources. Mm. So you've got to understand your evidence. Evidence has quantity and quality. Mm. So that's the first thing. Get, get your teams, understand what's going on, because that is your data. That's your raw material. And if you're trying to refine information to make improvements, you've got to start off with raw material. Mm. You know, you've got mm. to have that biomass of raw material and eventually a diamond will appear. The second part which I've alluded to is, does everybody know the problem you're trying to solve? 
Does everybody have a shared definition of either the, the, the goal or, or the problem? Because I can promise you, unless they've categorically told you they do, they probably haven't. Mm. They mm. really haven't. And, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, we test this out all the time in the training environment. It, it just isn't common. And you know, we've had, you know, we've had projects where you know we've been weeks or even months down the line, and we've got everyone back together, and we said, okay, we are we all absolutely clear on what we're trying to do here. And at that point, you realise that no, you weren't. But for the past six weeks, every, everybody's been working diligently, yeah. but in pointing, heading off in different directions. Mm. You know, that's 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 when things become expensive and difficult and frustrating. So watch the problem, and once you know what the problem is, it's much much easier at that point to actually define, well, how did it hurt us? What did this problem do to us as an organisation? All those things we mentioned earlier about mm. the pain it delivered. And secondly, what, did, what didn't happen this time, but could have happened? Mm. You know, Sally was in, in the contact centre that day. She had expertise in that field. She was able to jump in and solve this problem that could have resulted in major reputational damage to us in, in, in a matter of hours. But what if it had happened during Sally's lunch break? Mm. What would we have done then? So did we dodge a bullet this time? And actually, had we not dodged it, what would the cost of the problem been then? Mm. Because if you know what the real cost is, plus the, the realistic cost, the risk, the potential cost, the risk, at that point, you can start to put an idea together as to what the problem was costing you and what budget you might want to at least think about yeah. allocating to a solution. Yeah. If you don't understand the pain, how can you possibly know what the medicine should be yeah, or cost? Yeah. So you have to get that right. And most people are so keen to get to solutions for, because, like we said, we've all been rewarded for being clever and providing yeah. solutions that we want to run through those processes really quickly. And actually, we need to slow down. And the final part of slowing down is what's the analysis? What actually happened? What's that first principles part where we go, well, OK, what happened here? Let's break it down. Okay, well, this happened because of this. Are we sure? Are we missing anything? Okay, what else happened at the same time? Oh, well, there were more aspects to it. Right, now let's anal analyze all of those individually because if we start to analyze those and we understand that there wasn't just one cause but there were 25 simultaneously simultaneous causes, some big, some small, we've now got 25 opportunities to intervene and to mitigate and solutions... Uh, control or or, or 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 eliminate so we can we can we can do one of those things once we've done that and we've now got we you know we've we've got the data we've understood the problem we've analyzed it fully we're comfortable we we know what happened and we're also comfortable that we've got an idea of some of the unknowns we can then start looking at solutions can't we we can then say well okay these are all the things that happened and these are all the ways we can intervene these are all the things we in theory could do there's 50 of them but are they going to be effective? Can we actually do them or are they pie in the sky? Can we afford them? Because there's lots of things that are effective that we could do, but we simply can't afford. Mm. And actually, even if we can do it, and even if it would be effective, and even if it falls within the budget, what are the consequences of doing this? Not just the, the positive consequences, the obvious consequences. What are the things that might happen as a result of this? That, that we haven't thought about, that if we just spend a few minutes just contemplating it, we can either account for now and put protections in place, or we can actually park that solution as something which superficially looks great, but actually has some pretty terrifying consequences if we, if we did it now. Mm -hmm. So if you put all of those together, that gets you to a point where you get to that sort of lessons learned stage, that sort of 
corporate memory stage where you can say, well, okay, well, how do we make, how do we actually benefit from this knowledge? How do we get to the point where, um, how do we get to the point where we can actually share and transfer this information in a valuable way? And, 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 and that's totally, you know, without doing that, all that hard work that preceded it is, is wasted. Um, I, I, an example I use in training is of Captain James Lancaster. Do you know that story? Okay, so Captain James Lancaster was, um, went down in history as the first naval captain in the year 1601 to test out the beneficial properties of vitamin C on the crews that he used to take his ships, his Royal Navy ships, Royal Navy slash Merchant Navy ships, because they were often mm. one and the same um, on, the spa on the spice route. And he, would took four, he took a fleet of four ships um, around Africa and up to Asia, and on two of those ships he rationed, orange, uh, rationed lemons. So every sailor on those two ships had to have a teaspoon or a slice of lemon, whatever it was, every day. And on the other two ships, things were left as they were. And of course, by rationing lemon and or vitamin C, he was able to tackle the scourge of scurvy head-on, which was the illness which, which wiped out sailors' crews on long journeys. And on the two ships that had lemon uh, prescribed to them, uh, he had a fit, ready and able, healthy crew when he, when he got to his destination. And on the two ships that were left as they were, standard fare, half the sailors were sick, they had fatalities, and it was really hard to navigate those ships around the world. How many years do you think it was after that experiment that, that the Royal Navy made the prescription or the delivery of vitamin C a non-negotiable for their crews? Um, devastating sickness. I mean, absolutely yeah. devastating. I'm going to say, and this was 1600. 1601, I think, it first took place. I'm going to say five years. Okay, add 195 to that. 200 years after that. It was 200 years after Captain James Lancaster's experiment that it became non-negotiable for vitamin C to be consumed on a daily basis by sailors within the Royal Navy. How come it took so long? The real reasons for that are slightly lost in history. He recorded it in his diary and he reported it to naval command. That much is known. It seems that it was considered important at the time, but not so important that it was shared as a piece of information in the way they would have done in those days. It was certainly known anecdotally, and it was practiced, but it wasn't practiced across the entire Royal Navy, or indeed any other Navy for that point of view. It was a technique which certain captains used and certain didn't. And when you think about it from a human life point of view, it's fascinating because we know that human life wasn't valued in quite the same way then as it is now, although quite how much the difference is, is is hard to say. But one thing's for sure, those ships that were lost because of sickness yeah. were the fighter jets of their day. They yeah. were the most valuable yeah. thing the government owned. Yeah. And some of those ships were so devastated by scurvy and other illnesses related to the lack of vitamin C that you couldn't even get them back to dock yeah. and that they were stolen by pirates or the crews couldn't fight off pirates when they were attacked. Mm. Sometimes they had to bring out other crews to them to bring them back. It, the equivalent in money terms today yeah, for the yeah. sake of a bucket of lemons yeah. is billions and billions of pounds. Yeah. So the point is that you know, your lessons learned program, however you manage it, 
is absolutely crucial and that takes you from step one to step five. And it has to get to the right people as well because if that information is just lost then... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's how it's accessed, it's how it's shared, it's how it's recorded. Because, I mean, you know, Captain James Lancaster's information was, was, was recorded, the diaries are still available today, but it wasn't shared and it wasn't accessible. So it's not just a case of recording it and then patting yourself on the back and moving on. What you've learned is crucial. This has been um, fascinating. Now, prior to coming today to um, hook up with you again, I, I dug out, I, and I'll share it on LinkedIn when I publicise this episode, I have a, a picture of us 27 years ago at some black tie event, and uh, for the benefit of everyone listening, Ed is a lot taller than me. Um, this picture, I can only say, sums up what I'm kind of feeling like now. Big smile on my face. But I'm looking at Ed in awe. And this was because he's always been, he's always been smarter than your average bear. Um, and it's, it's kind of like what I'm now. I'm, I'm going to share it because it's very, very funny. But I like to think that I could have predicted you would at some point in your career get to this point. And the reason being is... For all those people that Poo Poo does for playing Mario Karts, but also I like to think we invented the um, kind of like would you rather type games. Uh, the, we occupied a hell of a lot of time doing stuff like this, and Ed gave one of the best answers I've ever heard, which kind of links to what it is now. And I don't know if you remember this, but I asked you it's the morning of one of your final exams, really high pressure. Okay. And you wake up in the morning, and very much like Franz Kafka metamorphosis, but you wake up, <laughs> but you're a badger. <laughs> You've got your own brain, your own consciousness, and you can talk. What would you do? And uh, Ted, without missing a beat, um, very calmly said, "Well, I would need one of you guys. I would need to set off a hell of a lot earlier because I've only got small legs." <laughs> and it's going to take me longer to get to my exam. And I would need one of you guys to sellotape a pen onto my back. So you were already thinking of problems and solutions. and One step ahead. Yeah. yeah. I like the concept of sort of um, pastoral British countryside Franz Kafka. Uh, I think when I travel home this afternoon on, on the train, I think that's the, that's, the, <laughs> that's the memory I'm going to take with me. And I think as well, I, we, we're in this, we're in the, maybe this was a, pretty much countryside day but one of the other ones was what would you do if you woke up with huge deer's antlers yeah and and again I'm, I'm it might not have been you I'm pretty sure it was but the answer was well because they're dead I would just hacksaw them and file them down <laughs> underneath my hairline. And it was such a sensible answer. I mean, it's just kind of stuck with me over it's like all this sort time. Of Highland Hellboy, effectively. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, those people that were looking at us thinking, what are those two wasters doing? Now look at us. We're yeah. still wasting time, <laughs> but we're having fun on a podcast, doing it. Aren't um, we? Brilliant. Ed, thank you so much. I'm sure people are going to want to contact you and ask you further questions. That's okay. And, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we're going to do a uh, get out a rap nighttime version, one of these, just for our own uh, amusement more than anything. <laughs> just for your vanity and self-indulgence. Ed, thank you very much. Martin, thank you. Thank you.